Well, good morning. Take your Bible this morning and turn to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah near the end of your Old Testament. After the book of Obadiah, if that didn't help you, look at the table of contents. Somebody around you, all work together, get there. And if you can't get there, uh, in just a few moments, it'll be up on the screen. Uh, at the end of my senior year in high school, I kind of moved from being a, a back road, stereotypical pastor's kid that rebelled against everything I was taught uh, to surrender my, my life to the Lord, a radical change in my life because of the gospel. And I, um, my youth pastor at the time, he saw a change in me. He asked me if I wanted to preach in youth worship one night, and I reluctantly agreed, said no at first, and then said okay. And the passage that I selected to preach on was Jonah chapter 1. It was about six and a half minutes long, and it was a terrible sermon, all right? Um, and since then, I've preached on this passage dozens of times. Uh, I, f- I feel like I have. In fact, I've even I've preached on it once since I've been here. But this is what I love. Every time I come back to this book, uh, there is fresh truth here uh, that uh, shows us uh, truth about the, the, the large uh, story that Scripture is telling. You know, it's just a wonderful uh, it's a wonderful passage. It's a wonderful book that gives you a really clear snapshot of the gospel. Just gospel themes running all in and out of this book. Uh, sin, uh, you find repentance, you find evangelism, you find missions, uh, call to reach the nations. It's all over this book. So I thought this would be a great uh, next stop for us in our Sunday morning sermon series in the Old Testament called The Gospel Thread. So from Genesis to Revelation, you find a gospel thread of redemption running through every page every word, every chapter, and it's all pointing to Jesus, all pointing to the cross, and we see it all over the book of Jonah. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time this morning trying to convince us that scientifically it's possible for uh, a man to survive in a, in, a, in a whale's stomach for a few days, all right? Uh, so it's fun to look at those things, and sometimes those are fun to bring up. Um, I'm just going to say this. We believe this is historical. We believe this is literal. We believe this is factual. We believe that this happened. Why? Because Scripture presents it as historical. Second Kings chapter 5 presents Jonah as a real prophet who served under a real king, King Jeroboam II. Uh, an evil king, uh, but uh, presents Jonah as a historical figure. Jesus, in, in Matthew, a p- passage we'll look at later in the, in the sermon, uh, talks about Jonah as a historical figure. So it, it, it's just interesting that, it, and really, this is not that hard to believe, if you believe the Bible, if you read the rest of the Bible, that this could happen. All right, so we spend a lot of time, you know, even amongst Christians kind of talking about, is this meant to be read as an allegory? Did this really happen when the Bible is full of supernatural events that all break the laws of nature that we believe in as historical events that happened? All right, we believe that God spoke the universe into existence with his words. All right, we believe, we believe that God put on flesh and dwelt among us and walked around and manipulated uh, the laws of nature walked on water, all right? He rose from the dead. So to believe that a man could get swallowed up by a fish and live in that fish for a few days and get spit back up onto a shore isn't that hard to believe. And I think it's important, I wanted to point that out at the beginning of this sermon because we can get so enamored by the great fish, right? We can get so enamored by the, the whale or the fish in this story that you can almost miss the point of the story. A G. Uh, Campbell Morgan says this, he says, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they fail to see the great God in the story. A great God that pursues runaways like us. A great God who pursued us in our salvation and praise God, a, a God who continues, a great God who continues to pursue us and hold on to us and hold us fast in our salvation. So with those things in mind, stand as I begin to read in Jonah chapter one, I'm going to read through 17, pretty good chunk of scripture, but I think we can do it together, all right? 
So Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Uh, So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, uh, and they hurled the cargo uh, that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came up and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God, uh, that your God, will give a thought to us uh, that we will not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account the evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where did you come from, and what uh, is your country? What kind of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may uh, quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. That was a hard one. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea had grown more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish with this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Would you have a seat as I pray? God, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that we have an opportunity this morning to gather together to worship you through song and now to get in your word together. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's living. We know it's active, Lord. And we pray that our hearts would be teachable, Lord. May we hear it. May we believe it. May we put it into practice for the unending glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, Jonah is a minor prophet, 12 minor prophets, four major prophets in the Old Testament. Minor prophet just means that it was a short, it's a shorter book. It doesn't mean they're any less important than the major prophets. All right, but Jonah is a unique prophet in the sense that most of the other prophets are, they have their flaws, but they're overall presented as pretty good examples of what it looks like uh, to have faith, uh, to be on mission for God, uh, to be faithful, right? Jonah is not presented that way. Jonah's presented as a joke. He's, he's presented almost like as a laughing stock, right? When we look at this uh, story and you're going to find yourself laughing at how foolish he can be. Like, how can a man be this foolish who says that he's a follower of God? And yet you don't need to forget that as you walk through this book, the author's writing this in a way that the book's uh, intended to be a mirror into our lives. We should read this and see the worst parts of us magnified in Jonah's story. All right, so that's part of it. It's a mirror showing us that we are a lot like Jonah, but it's also simultaneously showing that the same God who wouldn't give up on Jonah is not going to give up on us. The same God is full of love and compassion and pursues Jonah is the same God, if you're in Christ, who is your heavenly father. 
So that's the way we're going to approach this text this morning. We're going to see it as a mirror that's going to show us some things about our life that we may not want to see, but we're going to end by seeing that we have a God who relentlessly pursues us. So we're going to see three things in this text. The first one is this. We see a personal word from a personal God. We see a personal word from a personal God. Look at verse one. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now that's not anything new. Uh, This is what prophets do. You get a message from God, you deliver it to the people of God. Or usually this message is delivered to just that, the people of God, the nation of Israel. But this is an unusual word that he gets from God. And that uh, God not only has a message for the Israelites, but has a message for the Gentile people as well. And Jonah is the prophet of God that God's enlisting to go and deliver this message. It's an unprecedented mission. All right, this is the first, Jonah's being commissioned as the first foreign missionary to ever be commissioned to take a message of God to a foreign nation. Now, what nation is he supposed to go to? Nineveh. What do we find out about Nineveh there? It says that it's a great city, first of all. It's great in a few ways. It's great in size. It's a great city. It's also great in its wickedness. The Ninevites were enemies of God, wicked people. I mean, pagan idolaters. They're a uh, just unashamedly worshipped false gods, a plethora of them, all kinds of them, polytheistic people, pagan. Their favorite god to worship was the god Dagon, which was a fertility god uh, depicted as half man, half fish. All right, they, they loved that god. They were very barbaric people. All right, they, uh, there wasn't a more barbaric nation on earth than Nineveh. They were wicked. Tapestries have been found that show that when they would defeat their enemies in a, in a battle, that they would, they would conquer them and they'd do mean things to them. They'd take the leaders, they'd rip out their tongues. They'd skin their enemies alive. They'd dismember them. I'll stop there. You could get even, actually there's one more I'll tell you. They would, they would cut off their eyelids. They'd cut off their enemies' eyelids and take them out on a nice sunny day and do some not so nice things with them, cut their eyelids off and just set them there in the sun and make them face the sun. This is the type of people we're talking about. Cruel people. In fact, our archaeologists have uncovered that they would, they would take men into these dark rooms and they would tie them up into chairs and make them watch marathons of Hallmark Christmas movies, right? <laughs> Y'all knew that was coming. You knew that was coming. Christmas is almost here. Cruel people. But in all seriousness, a barbaric nation. And so you can imagine what he's thinking when he receives this word from the Lord, Right? Uh, you can probably sense why I feel so reluctant, right? You know, Hawaii on a mission trip? Yes, please. Iraq? No, thank you, right? As we, before, before we look at how Jonah responds, you know, something um, struck me here, you know, that I want to pause and point out that I really hadn't thought about before. Just at the very beginning of this book, the amazing grace and love that God's showing and just his willingness to communicate with the sinful people at all. Just think about that. It's easy to miss that at the beginning of this book. Now, what he has to do is he has to deal with, and I'm talking about Nineveh for a second. He has to deal with Nineveh's sin. He has to, he doesn't have to talk to them. He has to deal with this, their sin. He's a just God. That's a sobering truth right there that there's not evil and there's not wickedness and there's not sin in this world that he's not aware of and that he's not going to deal with. But he doesn't have to deliver a message to them. And think about the message that he delivers. It's a warning, but don't miss the love of God in that message. He's choosing to communicate with them, these wicked, barbaric people worshiping all these other gods, steeped in idolatry, but he chooses to stoop down and to warn them where their wickedness is leading them. There's grace and there's there's grace and there's mercy there, right? And him stooping down to talk to this evil nation, and there's amazing grace that's seen in his willingness to speak and continue to commune with sinners saved by grace like us. 
You know what the actions of Jonah, as, we, as this kind of unfolds and we just read it, kind of show that I think he's gotten over that. The awe and the marvel and the wonder that God would commune and, and, and talk and speak with sinners saved by grace like us. That he'd be willing, listen, to speak truth into our lives, willing and desiring to walk with us and talk with us and walk beside us and commission us and lead us and help us walk in his will by speaking to us. He's a speaking God. And all of this he does primarily, the speaking primarily through the avenues of his word and through prayer. See, it's not a question of will God speak and is God speaking. The question is, am I positioning myself daily to hear from him? That means I got to make studying his word priority. That means I got to make studying the word of God more important than any other discipline in my life. Why? Because that is where the God of heaven speaks into my life. And my job is to listen. His job is to speak. My job is to position myself to hear from him in his word and to listen to him and to apply his truth and to obey his truth, not just a part of it, not just some of it, all of it. It doesn't need my filter. You know what I'm saying? Like there's some things in our life that need to be filtered through. right? But God's word isn't intended to be viewed like the junk mail that ends up in our mailbox. Junk mail that's to be filtered through, right? You, there's some stuff that you need to, messages that you need to filter in your life. You don't need that extra extended car warranty for that car that's 30 years old that just came in your mailbox. Filter that. Right? That email, there's emails that need to be filtered through. You don't need to respond to that prince in Ethiopia who has promised you millions of dollars if you help them out. You need to delete that. There's some things in our life that need to be filtered out. God's word is not in that category. And this is where everything goes south for Jonah. Instead of receiving God's word with no filter, he filters out the parts of God's word that he didn't like. It doesn't fit with the way he sees things and how they should work in his world. Instead of receiving God's word, this personal word from God and seeing the amazing grace and how God communes and leads us and instructs us and guides us, he flees. It says he chooses to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And that begins our next point. Not only do we see a personal word from a personal God, we see a rebellious response from a rebellious runaway. So instead of the prophet of God going to Nineveh, a place Isaiah 66 says the glory of God has not been known, Jonah goes and gets on the nearest boat, the nearest boat station, gets a ticket, and heads to Tarshish. Now, what is Tar- Tarshish? is a city 2,500 miles away from Nineveh. He's literally doing his best to get onto the other side of the map away from the place that God has called him, trying to get to the opposite end of the world. What is he trying to do? Verse three actually tells us twice. He's trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. He's trying to hide from God. And if you're taking notes this morning, if you're going to choose to play hide and go seek with somebody, it might be a good idea to find out if that person you're playing with is omnipresent. It might help. This could create a little problem for Jonah. And, and this is what makes you scratch your head is he, he, he knew this. He's memorized passages like Psalm 119 that David wrote 200 years before this happened. God, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And we look at this and we go, we shake our head, don't we? It's a laughingstock. It's a joke. It's like, really? You call yourself, what Christian in their right mind thinks they can outrun God? What Christian in their right mind thinks they can win a hide and go seek game with God? Flee from his presence. That's just it. Jonah's not in his right mind. What is he thinking? Remember this. This book isn't just meant for us to look at the life of another guy here and to laugh at Jonah's dumb behavior. It's a book that as you read it, 
makes you realize that you're laughing in a mirror. It's not just a satire about a disobedient prophet. It's a satire about all of us. Now, all of us can drift. All of us can be foolish. All of us can disobey the word of God and pretend like God don't see it happening. What areas of, I don't know if you came here expecting this question this morning, but this text begs this question of your life. What areas of your life are you running from God this morning? In what areas of your life have you drawn lines in the sand? Things that you are doing that you know you should not do or things that you should do that you are not doing. Rooms that you have tried to close off and keep God out of your life because you don't want him meddling in them. Areas you've been tempted to compromise in. Maybe it's a secret sin this morning. An area of your life, this, this, this room of your life that you've kept closed off in the dark corner of your life there, you, you're involved in a secret sin. You think... Your foolishness, you think somehow God doesn't see that. You ignore his omnipresence in your life and you're running. Maybe it's God calling you to stay in a marriage, a hard marriage, and you, you listen to the, the culture that says when it gets hard, you, you bail. But yet you hear God's word and you understand in your heart that God calls you to stay in that hard marriage and then he hasn't called you to be happy in a marriage primarily, but to be holy. And recently you've been looking for a boat out of town, looking to run. Maybe it's a relationship you're in that doesn't honor God, doesn't align with God's revealed will for God. Did you know God, going back to that first point, in God's word you find his revealed will. You're not going to find thou shalt marry so-and-so. If he would have said thou shalt marry Rebecca Rigdon, that would have made life a lot easier for me. But it tells you the type of person you're supposed to marry. It tells you the type of person you're supposed to be. It doesn't tell you what job to get. It tells you the type of worker you're supposed to be. And you're in some type of relationship maybe this morning that doesn't honor God, that doesn't align with his revealed will for your life. And you say, yeah, but he's nice. Yeah, but she's got a lot of spiritual potential. Aren't we good at that, trying to justify actions? When maybe really what it is is you're just afraid of being alone. And so afraid of being alone that you'd rather stay on the run and make a decision outside of the will of God that will greatly impact the rest of your life instead of trusting him and obeying his word and getting off of the boat that's running in the wrong direction away from God's best for your life. And we're good at talking ourselves into getting on those boats. Notice verse three says he found a ship going. He found a ship prepared. You know he was justifying that. Oh, I didn't like God's plan, but here I am. This is all working out. Ticket, you got, you got room for me on the boat? God has to be changing plans here. This is headed to Tarshish. This is exactly the way that I thought it should be. God must have changed his mind. And we're tempted to think the same way. We're tempted to run. Hey, listen, let's just get real. Church, at any given time, is full of runners. People running from God. People who know better. The church is full of runners. You are never further away from God than when you're close to the things of God, close to the counsel of God, close to the clear direction of God, and yet you respond to the clear direction of God with no thank you. What is that one room? Maybe it's more than one room that you've closed off in the house of your life. God, you can have everything else in my life, but not that. And whatever the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has a way in moments like this of showing you some things. And I beg you this morning, just... Keep those in view for a moment. Keep those in view for just a moment this morning. Maybe a sin that you're involved in that you need to lay down. Maybe that relationship that you need that you refuse to sever that you know is not honoring to God. Maybe a marriage that you're tempted to run from. Maybe be some kind of sacrifice that you feel called to make to God, but you've made every excuse to not make that sacrifice. Maybe some kind of decision that you need to, need to make and you've been running. Maybe it's something like baptism to be baptized to 
public profession of your faith. Maybe it's to join this church. Maybe it's some kind of ministry. You're, you, you've, you've felt the call to ministry maybe for years and you've, you've resisted it. You've been reluctant. Bivocational ministry, full-time ministry. Maybe a call to missions. Maybe you've been running in that way. In fact, if you are finding yourself running, which all of us often do, running from opportunities to point people to Jesus, you may find a lot more in common with Jonah than you realize this morning. Some of you may think you understand why he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Of course, I don't understand why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Who would want to go to Nineveh? Who would want their eyelids chopped off and have to watch Christmas Hallmark movies? Of course, you don't want to be tortured by a barbaric nation like Nineveh. That's not why he's reluctant to go to Nineveh. You know why he's afraid? He's not afraid of being tortured. Chapter 4 shows us he's more worried that God would call him to preach to his enemies and that they would turn and serve and love and worship that same God of grace that he serves. Jonah knows what God is up to and he doesn't like it. He's upset at the scandalous nature of the gospel. That there would be grace and forgiveness and love for those kind of people. And for, and for some of us, you may not say it like that. You may not want, and you'd never say you'd want bad things to happen per se to people who don't know Christ. No, we just live indifferent to the reality that we are surrounded by a sea of people. They're living and breathing and eating and sleeping, and one day they'll draw their last breath in this realm, and they will spend, if they don't know Christ, the best that they've ever known will be experienced on this side of eternity, not on the other. And we get indifference toward it. We get comfortable in our own lives and comfortable in our own church and inoculated with ourselves and our stuff and our jobs and, and our kids. And those things aren't bad. But what happens is they begin to, they begin to overshadow and they begin to distract us from God's calling to do something about the lostness that surrounds us. The lostness of the nations, the lostness of our neighbors, the lostness of people we sit next to in school, the lostness of the drug addicts out on the street. The lostness of the Muslim family down the road. The lostness of people who politically think different than me. And you say, I don't know how I feel about that. Neither did Jonah. I've asked this question before, and I think it's a good one for us to continue to consider. Are you more, believer, I'm talking to a Christian. Are you more turned off by the sinful activity and political positions and decisions and lifestyles of the lost more than you are turned on for their potential salvation? Are you more disgusted by the lifestyle of a drug addict more than you're excited about the potential miracle God could do through the power of the gospel in that person's life if someone will tell them? Have you forgotten that you are an enemy of God? Have you forgotten that you are a citizen of the kingdom of darkness, warring against the God of heaven? And God sought you and saved you and brought you unto new life. And guess what? He has saved you now as a believer, as an adopted son or daughter of God, saved you so that now you can tell lost people how to be saved. It's the point of your existence. Is this an area where we've run? I think that's a word for all of us. Where is the area where you've run? What are the rooms that you've closed off? Identify it. Own it. And know this morning, as we move into this next part, that the Holy Spirit refuses to let you stay comfortable there. Refuses to let you stay comfortable on the run. He loves you too much. Third point is this. We see a relentless pursuit from a pursuing father. So Jonah made his decision and God made his, right? Jonah said, God, I'm, I'm running away from you. And God said, okay, I'm, Jonah, I'm running after you. In other words, you can run, but you can't hide. Verse four shows us that he's just watching Jonah run. 
That's his perspective on the world and the universe. He's just kind of watching him, trying to get out of town on this boat. It says in verse four, he hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. So God's stirring up the seas, pursuing the prophet. Alarms are going off, emergency code red, all hands on deck. The boat's shaking violently. And you know it's bad when the professionals or mariners are like panicking, right? These are professional sailors freaking out. Like I don't freak out when I fly usually, right? Even if the plane shakes a little bit, I'm good. As long as the lady's still coming down with the sodas in her cart, she looks good, I'm good. She's not panicking, I'm okay. But if she rushes to her chair and puts on her seatbelt, then I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm, okay. And the pilot comes from the front. This is your captain speaking, right? Looking a little dicey up here. Not looking good, folks. Uh, Don't know how this is going to go. One of two ways might be bad, right? Then I'm putting down the the SkyMall magazine, picking up the little pamphlet nobody wants to read and figuring out how the oxygen masks work, right? That's what's going on right here. That's what's happening. They're panicking. They're throwing cargo overboard. They're throwing their livelihood. This is their job. They're throwing their livelihood overboard. That's how desperate things are. Trying to make the boat lighter so... It'll stay above the waves. The boat is in full-blown crisis mode. They're so afraid in verse 4, it says each cried out to his God. So they got their polytheistic uh, Rolodex of gods and they get, uh, they get, they're looking through the different gods. Which one can help us? They're having this discussion. And as they're having this discussion, think about this picture. As they're having this, this discussion on the top deck, these lost sailors discussing which God has the power, theological debate about the God that's got the power to save them. Where's the prophet of God? He's conked out down to the bottom of the boat asleep. Something's wrong with this guy. He's spiritually checked out. Notice the contrast in this passage. God says, rise up, go up and out. Jonah does nothing but go down and go down and go down and go down. Down to Joppa, down into the boat, down deep into asleep. And then soon he's going to go down into the sea. It's a picture of the progressive nature of sin. It's been said, sin will take you further than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. The sad picture of a prophet who knows better and who has spiraled deep down into sin and does not want to deal with God. And here's kind of his last ditch effort. Maybe I can just escape. I'm just going to go to sleep. Escapism. Just pretend it's not even there. Look who wakes him up. The prophet of God who should be up on the deck praying to God gets shaken awake by who? A captain who doesn't even believe in God. Doesn't even know God. Knocks on the door. Hey, hey, preacher. Thinking maybe a good idea. It's getting a little rough out here. Maybe a good idea for you to come up and maybe lead us in a little prayer meeting here. Get a sinner telling a Christian here how he should be living his life. Look at how God is, isn't that interesting? He's using a storm to shake up Jonah, but he's also humiliating him through the actions of these sailors who seem to be practicing their false religion with more passion and commitment than he's practicing the real one. But these sailors sense that there's a problem, spirits in somebody's life, they seem to sense that that's the problem. And so they cast lots and, God has even got a, he's even controlling the Yahtzee game. They say they cast lots, they throw the dice, whatever number Jonah got assigned, it hits his number, hits his number, hits his number. Jonah, it's on you, man. Who are you, Jonah? Where are you from, Israel? What do you do? I'm a preacher. Why are you going to Spain? I don't know, you know, just a little vacation. I heard it's a great place. Always wanted to run with the bulls, right? Heard it's a nice place to visit. You know, he gets honest in verse nine and it makes things even get, get more urgent. Verse 9, he says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord who made the sea and the dry land. Isn't that, isn't that sad? Notice him running from God's turned him just into a flat out hypocrite. He's identifying, he's saying, identifying as a God fear, but he's not walking in the fear of God. In fact, the sailors seem to be walking 
in more fear of the God that he claims to serve than he is. And these sailors, man, they freak out. And they're like, wait a second, wait, hold on a second. You just said you serve, we, we serve like moon God and we serve this God. We've been kind of going through our Rolodex here looking at all the different gods that we serve. You're saying you serve the God who created everything. They're being introduced to the God of Israel who created everything, the true God, the one and only true living God. Wait, that's your God. So he made the sea, that's your God. This is not good. This is not, and you come, you brought us into your mess. Why did you, why didn't you get your own little single man rowboat back at the boat station and go on your own? Why did you bring us into your problem? Which brings up an interesting point, doesn't it? We learn here that he's not only on a path of destruction for his own life, but notice as he's running from God, he's on a path of destruction that'll affect others' lives as well. Listen, the rooms you close off, the rooms you don't want God meddling in, the areas of disobedience in your life, the sins of commission, the sins of omission, they don't only affect you. Your choices impact others. So when Rebecca was pregnant with Emma, she's our oldest daughter. And you know, when you have your first kid, just you pay attention to everything, right? Everything, you're just real careful with everything, right? Reading all the literature, you know. Um, the other, when you have more, you're just like, whatever. All right, they'll be good. But all, all the appointments are reading all the pamphlets and reading all the, the baby books. And I remember being in, one, I can't remember where we were at. We we're in a waiting room at, at a doctor's office. I remember her being pregnant. We were there for a checkup. And I remember looking at a pamphlet and I opened it up to see the most bizarre picture inside. It was, it was a drawing of a, like a mom, but like you could kind of, it's like the silhouette and you kind of see inside of her belly. And there was a little, a picture of a baby. And, and the baby, I was startled, was, was smoking a cigarette. Well, you don't see that every day. A little chain smoking baby inside a mom. Like, that's, that's new. But underneath it, it said this. It said, when mommy smokes, baby smokes. Well, picture got a little less weird. That makes sense, right? Listen, these sailors, think about what these sailors are. They're minding their own business. They're working. They're just trying to get from port A to port B. Trying to get their cargo there so they can get paid so they can take care of their families. And now they're almost deaf. They're not getting paid because their cargo has been thrown overboard. And now they may lose their lives. In other words, when Jonah smokes, the sailors smoke. No one ever gets to sin alone. What we do in the secret rooms that we close off from God, that we do not allow him to reign over, that we do not allow him to work in, to set us free from, eventually, listen, will always impact other people's lives in our life. There's always collateral damage. You do, you do not get to live on an island. Our sin is never just about us. So a boss who won't relinquish his pride, it's always going to affect his employees. It's always going to affect the company. Parents who can't learn to talk to each other with grace and with love, learn to lay down pride, learn to sacrificially love each other, learn to say simple things like I'm sorry and to apologize and live out the gospel in front of their kids. Your children's behavior is being shaped by that. You don't get to live on an island. The dad who chooses the affair, chooses adultery, your son may walk in those same patterns. Parents, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to young and old parents, older, older parents in here this morning. I want, you, I want you to listen to this. We got to be this direct. We got to just be straight up, all right? Living out some apathetic form of so-called Christianity, absent of the fear of God, absent of the love of God, absent of listen, a passion for the gospel, absent of, 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 of repenting of sin, of confessing sin, of loving Jesus. Your, your, your kids know whether or not it's real or not. They know. I was in student ministry for 15 years. They know. And maybe God has brought you here 
in this moment, pursued you to this very moment through his word to beckon you to stop running in that direction of being apathetic, of being some kind of cultural nominal Christian. Not to be the perfect parent, not to turn your life in the direction of being a perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. But a parent who genuinely loves Jesus, you can sense a stone cold seriousness in you about your faith in God. Your choices impact others. And and listen, I don't say that just to heap guilt on you. If you have a child today who has grown and who is running from God, listen to me carefully. God was the perfect parent and look at his kids. You can't think that way. At the same time, you, you got to move forward and you do have to embrace the principle that is there. That Listen, now moving forward, no matter if you're a young parent, no matter if you're an older parent, if your life collides with the gospel in a serious way, you fall head over heels in love with Jesus. You become passionate about the things that God is passionate about. Love the things that he loves. It begins to impact your life and change it. The Holy Spirit reaches into your life and turns that switch on. It doesn't matter if your kids are 50 years old. It doesn't matter if your kids are five years old. It makes an impact. We don't live on an island. And how we live our lives affects other people's lives. Jonah shows us that. Well, these sailors look at Jonah and they ask... They, He seems to have a connection with this God who's created this storm. And he says, what can we do to stop the storm? I think there's a lot of debate on on why he says, throw me in. Is he on a suicide mission? I choose to think, I believe, he's kind of a dramatic guy. Look at how many times he's like throughout the book, goes, kill me, God, kill me. I think this is a a turning in his life to where he only, he knows the only thing that can, he's just kind of throwing himself in the hands of God, surrendering himself. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He's just like, basically, if, if the storm's going to be killed, you got to kill me. You got to throw me over. But I do believe deep down that there's a heart of surrender, and I believe there's a trust there that God will work. With sailors, they seem to think that they can get him back to shore. They don't want to kill the guy, so they start rowing harder. That doesn't work. So they just ask God for forgiveness. They said, this is our only option. Forgive us for what we're about to do. And they throw him overboard. And as soon as he hits the water, whew, storm goes away. And it says they feared God. It says they feared the Lord. They offered sacrifices to the Lord, made vows and worshiped him. Which is an an incredible picture in a sermon in and of itself here of a a picture of salvation, right? They're laying down their oars. They've they've stopped trying to to row their way out of their mess. They've tried to to stop working their way out of the judgment of God. It's pending. And they've laid down their oars and they've given up. That's an incredible picture of salvation. For some of you, maybe that's relying on religious works and your efforts to earn a right relationship and right standing with God. It doesn't work. So there's definitely a picture of that, but it's also a glimpse of the heart of God whose mission is to reach the nations with the gospel. In other words, he isn't just in the middle of the sea pursuing his prophet. He's in the middle of the sea pursuing pagan Phoenician sailors. How incredible are the sovereign purposes of God right here? You got Jonah, the worst missionary ever. He's the worst missionary ever. He's on this boat. Why? He's running because he doesn't want to minister to messy, sinful people. He doesn't want to miss it. He doesn't want to get outside of his nation and outside of his people. He wants to just network with people who look like him and think like him, his folks. And here God is fulfilling his mission to reach the nations on this boat in spite of this prophet's disobedience. It's as if he's saying this, I'm going to reach the nations either with you or in spite of you. And all these sailors begin to worship these pagan sailors. God with a heart to make the nations glad. 
They begin to take out their guitars. They begin to sing praise songs to God. They begin to worship him. Where's Jonah singing a song? But it blub, 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 blub down to the bottom of the sea. He's sinking like a rock. But what I love about this is God's not going to give up on this disobedient prophet. He has every reason to walk away and go, you know what? You don't want to cooperate, Jonah. See you later. But he's not done pursuing him. And instead of God, God allowing Jonah to drown, he appoints a large fish that swallows him up. Jonah prays in that fish. That fish is like an underwater Uber that flies across the sea, spits him up back on the dry land. We're at his point of disobedience as if to say, we want to try this again. You want to get back on a boat? Try to head for Tarshish, and he doesn't. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches a sermon. It's the greatest revival in the history of revivals. The entire nation gets saved. The king gets so impacted, he tells everyone to mourn, even the animals. He's going overboard. Read it. It's true. There's still work to do in Jonah's life. You read chapter four, you read his little pout party. There's a lot more work that God needs to do in his life. But you're left in this book with an impression that God will not stop pursuing him. God will not stop working on him. Yes, it's a story about God who has a heart to make the nations glad, has a heart to reach the nations with the gospel and how we need to align ourselves with that. But it's also a story about a God who will not let Jonah be comfortable in his running who will refuse to let Jonah be content and satisfied and happy living outside of his will. And the same is true today. He will mess with you to mature you. Whom the Lord loves, he wears out. That's my version of Hebrews 12. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Whom the Lord loves, he corrects. He will not leave you alone. He loves you too much to leave you alone. Even if it takes putting you in the middle of a storm of conviction this morning. And you're like, can this just get over so I can go to lunch? I feel bad. Or maybe even some kind of other storm in life. He will do whatever it takes to get all of you. He loves you too much to let you stay comfortable running from him. If you're his, he will relentlessly pursue you. In other words, you can run, but you cannot hide. You can run, but you cannot hide. And he's in control of everything, so it's not a good idea to hide. Stop resisting. You got some rooms that are shut off. You got some lines in the sand. You got God's calling on your life that you've been reluctant to answer. You got those areas that need to be dealt with. It's in moments like this. You say, I hear you saying that God loves me and that God isn't going to give up on me. But in order for you, listen, to be shaken out of that running and be shaken out of that season of disobedience, what it takes is for you to look at where his love was most profoundly and powerfully demonstrated for you. It's where this book points to. The entire book points to Jesus. Do you see it? Back to Matthew 12, Jesus is prophesying before the Pharisees and the scribes. And he says this, he's the, Jonah's the only prophet that Jesus directly connects himself with. He says, for just as Jonah, Jesus says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the son of man be in three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The whole story is meant to point to what's going to happen on the cross and at the empty tomb. Jesus was everything Jonah was not. Jonah bolted, bolted away from messy sinners, broke, bolted away from broken people, did not embrace 
The instructions that God gave him, what does Jesus do? He leaves heavens to pursue messy sinners, to embrace God's instruction, to embrace the will of the Father. Just as Jonah went down into the ship and down into the mouth of that great fish and down into the depths of the sea because of his disobedience, Jesus was nailed to the cross and put inside the earth because of our disobedience. On the third day, Jonah was spit out of the fish and onto dry land so that he could have a new start. Listen, three days later, one greater than Jonah leapt forth from a borrowed tomb. The grave could not hold him, and he walked out in his resurrection body, not to give you a new start, not so you could turn over a new leaf, but to give you new life. Resurrection life. Not eternal life in the sense that you just get saved from hell and you get to go to heaven. No, he, he did all of that so that you could, listen, you could be saved from your sins. Not just the penalty of your sins, the power of your sins. So that he can take you down a path of victory so he can continue to shape you and mold you. And he will keep pursuing you until he has all of you. He will not stop. He will mess with you to mature you. He won't stop pursuing you. You say, well, what do I need to do? You need to stop resisting. You need to stop resisting. He will pursue you to save you from your sins and to save you from your self-destructive tendencies. Stop resisting. In other words, you say, what do I need to do this morning? Is it in view? Those areas where you have run, those areas where you've drawn lines, those rooms that you have closed off? You say, what do I need to do? Repent. If you're a believer, repent. Stop it. Denounce those things. And simply, listen, lay down those oars and say, I, once again, say, I'm yours. It's not who I am. And I'm arising and I'm walking towards you and I'm beginning a new path of obedience today. I'm going to change. By the power of the gospel, my desire is to change. And by the grace of God and by the power of the gospel, may we do just that as a result of being in his word today. Let's pray.